Shall we record? It is recording. Okay. In, uh, in our favorite park and uh, luckily all the time it's uh, sunny uh, what have you brought uh, since last episode yeah we closed last episode uh, setting we want to talk with uh, individual scientists who are doing lots of open science work to know uh, what their incentives are to do it since the structural incentives basically lack that's what we discovered last episode so uh, I talked to Kirsty Whitaker. She's uh, at the Alan Turing Institute in London, and she's also a Mozilla Open Science Fellow. And uh, we had a really nice talk on uh, why she does open science and what motivates her personally. And you also talked to someone, right? Yes, uh, I talked to Daniel Lakens. Daniel Lakens uh, is a assistant professor of psychology at the University of Eindhoven. He has a very famous blog. Uh, in his blog, he's very outspoken about uh, reproducibility in uh, social sciences. He has even uh, created a massive online course called uh, uh, Improving Your Statistical Inferences, in which he, he, he explains that if every social scientist improves their statistical uh, knowledge, then the whole uh, field will, will get a boost. So I talked to him and he told very nice positive things about how open science can help a whole field come out of crisis and improve itself. So shall we listen to them? Yeah, let's have a go. So my name is Kirsty Witzka. I'm a research fellow at the Alan Turing Institute and I'm also a senior research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. I did my PhD at the uh, University of California in Berkeley and uh, in neuroscience, and I was interested in brain development. And my path to open science is probably one that is very, very similar for a lot of early career researchers, which is that during the five years of my PhD, I became sort of a queen of finding null results or results that went in the opposite direction to the published literature. So my real sort of passion for why I care so much about open science is because I'm, I really want to prevent the wasted energy that we currently have of researchers around the world, PhD students, master's students, postdocs, trying to do trying to replicate an analysis that they've seen in a published paper and failing. And the way that I found out that people other than me were failing, so it wasn't just me making mistakes, it was um, that, the that the study itself was difficult to replicate, is by going to conferences and talking with people at those conferences and thinking, oh wow, there's lots of people in the same place as me. So what I'm really passionate about is trying to sort of make everybody else's lives easier. I personally have really benefited from learning how to program and getting over all of my imposter syndrome associated with writing code and not being maybe a proper computer scientist. Something else that will help, according to Kirsty Whitaker, is an examination of the current incentive structures. This, by the way, is something we also explored in the previous episode. So what we have right now, which is more closely aligned with rewarding novelty. so new information, not confirmatory information, and also rewarding people who are fast. And then finally, and this is maybe a stretch goal, 
Um, but what I would love to see is a, a scientific community that really rewards collaboration. How does this translate in the day-to-day -day work? I have a vastly varying range of practices depending on who I'm collaborating with. So I recently attended the Software Sustainability Institute's collaboration workshop and my team came up with the, we actually won a prize for the best idea for a project for the hack day. And that project is completely open. We are using openly available data. All our code is available from the beginning. All of our communications, all of the back and forth of ideas and the development of the processes that we're coming up with, all of that are, is publicly available in a GitHub repository. There are other collaborations though, where I'm not able to share the work that I do um, as I'm doing it. But what I can do, because it's a much easier sell, is convince the people that I work with to make the code open and reusable on publication. So one of the big pieces of work that I do right now is work with uh, governance members at the clinical school at the University of Cambridge to set in stone a clear and transparent process through which another researcher would be able to access the data for the purpose of verifying my work. I also asked Kirsty about the Mozilla Open Leadership Program. I applied in 2015 to be a Mozilla Fellow for Science, and I got through to the very last round, but I was not, unfortunately, selected that year. I was selected the following year. But as a result of my really fascinating interviews with the uh, women who work at the Mozilla Science Lab, I was invited to be a member of the very first open leadership cohort that was run by Mozilla. And what we did was attend a working open workshop in Berlin in February of 2016, where we discussed um, all the different aspects of running an open source project. And we can think about making code available, but we have to also be able to consider how we're going to build a community around our projects and how we're going to design for participation. And that is one of the hardest things to do um, if you haven't been sort of trained in thinking about building inclusive communities before. And towards the end, you know, we, we la I launched a website for um, recommending uh, underrepresented minority members of um, science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. And that was the first round, and it is, I'm currently a mentor for the fifth round of the Open Leadership Cohort, and we have more and more and more people each time. So built in from the model, from the original model, is to increase the number of mentors so that um, people who have gone through the training are able to mentor new people each time. Just for the people who don't know the Mozilla Open Leadership Program, can you really shortly explain what it actually entails? We're on the fifth round of the Mozilla Open Leadership Training Program right now. I've been a mentor for four years and I was a member of the original cohort. What the program has evolved to is around 100 project leaders. So these are sometimes early career researchers, but they can also be um, open data or privacy activists from around the world. And they join a 12-week program where we have 
uh, mentorship, individual one-on-one -on -one mentorship every other week and community calls to, to the whole cohort together uh, in, on the in, in between. And we learn about um, how to build a community around your idea that is participatory by design and open from the beginning. An example of this open collaboration was the work done on a paper on adolescent brain development. I published in collaboration with uh, Dr. Petra Vertesh and Professor Ed Bullmore and our many colleagues who are members of the Neuroscience and Psychiatry Network at the University of Cambridge and University College London, a paper in 2016, in the summer of 2016, that looked at adolescent brain development. And we looked at the brain as a network. And so we shared all of the code that we had written. And we also replicated all of the analyses in two independent cohorts. And that's really cool. And we've been highlighted by um, a few different groups as being a really good example of reproducible research. However, if you try to actually run the code and reuse that code for your own purposes, which you, you it is licensed to do, you are very welcome to do that, you can find it all, it's all available, you will probably have quite a bit of difficulty. And so um, Isla Staden, who is a research assistant with me at the Alan Turing Institute, she was the recipient of a Mozilla mini grant to turn this monolithic code that works for me into a software package that allows people who are not named Kirsty Whitaker to conduct the same or related brain imaging analyses. So what she's done is she's taken out the parts of the code that are particularly important. She's modularized it, so she's made it easier to take the different parts and bolt them together for your particular use. And she's also added, very, very importantly, some tests to make sure that the code is actually doing what you think it's doing. And we have that now on continuous integration um, and also some documentation so that you don't have to, again, get inside of my head to understand exactly what I was trying to do. Okay, well, maybe we should then just talk about brain mapping in general, maybe in relation to open science. So one of my current projects, which I'm really, really excited about, is uh, I've just reviewed applications for a Google Summer of Code student to work on the BIDS starter kit. And the BIDS project is the brain imaging data structure. And I like to describe it as one of the most boring projects you could ever come up with, but also the project that is going to transform our world. Kirsty Whitaker is also involved in a code project run by Google aimed at facilitating the sharing of data. It's called the BITS project. So effectively, the goal of the BITS project is to come up with a standard for how you name your brain imaging files. And the starter kit, this, this project that I'll be mentoring over the summer, is to help people rename their files as easily as possible so that they are compliant. There's an altruistic reason for wanting to do this, and that's so that when you share your data, it's understandable and usable by others. But there's a really, really wonderful um, carrot that goes along with the BID standard, which are BID's apps. And if you have named your files in a standard way, such that a computer program is able to detect what information is there, what type of brain scan you have, 
what information you have about the participant. It is then much, much easier for us all to write programs. I call them glass boxes because they're a little bit like a black box, but they're open source so you can go in and have a look at, at what they're doing. But they are self-contained um, programs that will analyze that data for you. So how is this helpful for researchers? It's, it's much, much more efficient. And what I hope is that it will open up space in the sort of lives and minds of the researchers, the PhD students, the postdocs, to step back from the nitty gritty of writing the same code over and over and really be very creative in the analyses that we're able to do. Here at the Alan Turing Institute in the UK, we have a lot of specialists around machine learning and traditional brain imaging experiments are too small to be able to apply those sorts of methods. But if we not only share our code, but also make our data available, we can, we can start to pool all of these resources together and answer bigger questions than any individual research group would be able to do alone. Okay, so now for the last part. And that was the reflections of your colleagues on your open science work. It can be lonely sometimes, caring an awful lot about open science. I personally haven't experienced many people, maybe five in total over the last few years, who are pointedly against open science. What I struggle with most often, though, is the power and the inertia of the status quo. So it's very, very hard to encourage people to change what they have been doing for so long. And I have a sort of two-pronged approach for trying to nudge people towards um, adopting more open science practices. The first and the most, most important is to provide education for all of the researchers and also for the senior academics and the policymakers on why these steps are so important and also how you can find out more information about version controlling your code, for example, about what it means to document your data. Um, and I also try very hard to meet people where they are. So science, although science sells itself as being um, sort of politics free and fact based, it's done by humans. It's done by real people. And there are very, very few actual bad guys in the world. There's a lot of people who would like to do good science, but who would also like to pay their mortgage. And we are moving from a competitive culture in science towards a more collaborative culture. Kirsty Whitaker, a fellow researcher at the Alec Turing Institute and also a senior research associate at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. I talked to her via Skype.
Sun Li has of course been busy too, as we continue our quest to examine the current state of open science. Would you be kind of introduce yourself? Of course. So my name is Daniel Lakens. I'm working as an assistant professor at Eindhoven University of Technology, where my research is more in line of cognitive psychology most of the time, but I also spend a considerable amount of time and more and more actually working on topics that relate to methods, statistics, and uh, how to do good science. So I, on your website, I read that you advocate for open science. Uh, do you see yourself as an open science advocate? Um, yeah, I think so. I would say that I'm uh, pretty much convinced that this is the way forward. And I also try to work a little bit, a little bit towards it. So not just wait passively until it happens, but I also try to contribute to make it uh, work. So there are some definitions of open science. What's, I want to know what's your definition of open science? Open data and open materials, I think that's very important as somebody who does research. So I want all the materials and all the data underlying scientific papers to be open. Of course, the papers themselves should be openly accessible, for example, through preprints. And um, I think it's important, I would like to see more open review. So basically everything that goes into the publishing is accessible to anybody. You can take a look at everything that's been done. I also care a little bit about other things that are sometimes also shared under open science, like open education materials. But I think mainly as a scientist, I care about the open data materials and review and, and the publication. So from the people who work on open data, I, I hear that making data open and accessible is actually a lot more work than making data shareable among a small group of scientists who produce a paper uh, and are ready to provide the data, but to make it in a way that it's reusable and uh, uh, accessible to the whole world, it's a lot of work. You agree? I think that I agree. Um, especially the startup cost is pretty high because if you've never done anything, you have to figure out what to do. So there's a lot of cost involved in figuring out how to work with certain systems. For example, the first time that you use something like GitHub, for example, which we now regularly use in my lab, yeah, it takes a lot of time and a little bit of frustration every now and then to get started. But when you get into the habit then after that and you have a good system that works, it becomes not so much more work, especially because you actually also save time later on in the cycle. For example, if you recreate figures and everything is reproducible or if you have to redo analysis or those kind of things. So having a completely sort of open system um, is actually a little bit more work, but it's, I would say, manageable. I don't feel too bad about it most of the time. So you see mostly the barrier in starting to share data. Uh, do you see this as a burden or a barrier for for scientists? Um, yes, I think so, because we're all very busy. So it's fair. I mean, you, you can only spend your time on one specific thing. So you do really have to say, well, this is important enough to do this. And um, I think, I mean, my main, main motivation is that I think that if everybody does this, then everybody benefits in the end. I think people who are really motivated to do this, right? And they, they have a little bit of time to do it. Um, one of the things that's needed is a little bit of standardization, for example, like how do my data look like and how do I name things? And um, you know, there are a couple of ways that you could go about this or which kind of platforms will I use? and What should it look like? And it's always easier to copy everybody, uh, um, everything someone else did. 
right? So if someone else already figured out how it should look and how you should name things and which platforms you use, then you don't have to spend the time figuring that out. So in the beginning, people are most motivated for this, will make this extra effort, figuring out how to do things, and then other people can follow more easily. I think we're already in the time, by the way, that people can follow more easily because a lot of the groundwork has already been done. Some people say that, you know, it has been already quite some time talking about open access but or open data, but we are sort of hitting a wall because it is not institutionalized. Do you agree? I agree. If you want to have widespread implementation of this, the, you can wait for two things to happen. Either we spontaneously think, oh, yes, we're all going to do this. Um, Or you can have a rule, right? You can have some sort of mandate that requires people to do this. I often compare this to light bulbs. We also had a lot of light bulbs and we were hoping that everybody would see, oh, I have to stop buying these and buy energy efficient light bulbs. And it doesn't happen spontaneously. And then the European Union says, okay, it's been nice. Now we have to implement this rule because we believe it's good for everybody if we do this, but it's not going to happen spontaneously. And I think this is a similar situation. And I know that University of Eindhoven has a code of conduct, right? It's how, how did it actually? How was it formed? Well, I'm not. I wasn't involved in forming this. I know that we have it. It's actually a very good one, I have to say. Uh, and I know, for example, one of my colleagues uh, on the other side of the corridor from the philosophy department, uh, Anthony Meyer, was strongly involved in thinking about what this code should look like. It's strongly. Um, inspired by the code of conduct by the uh, association of dutch national universities so it's not completely different but it's a little bit more detailed and um, yeah i don't really know how it came about but uh, uh, they did a pretty good job in saying for example that you should always share your data it's part of the ethical code of conduct so we now have to do this if somebody asks one of the first things we did in our own department for example is uh, not have open science but we had well organized internal science so for example we had a system where everybody shared their data when it was collected it was uploaded in a central server uh, just as a backup and everything was there so we would never lose materials or data everything was organized especially from student projects that's actually a very good idea because you lose things after a couple of years and uh, so now everything is there it's a very nice organized workflow Uh, so a lot of these open science programs which are made uh, nationally or internally, they do have a section on incentives. Uh, they say a lot of reasons that these things are not happening and there is resistance is that the incentives are not aligned. Mm -hmm. First of all, do you agree with this point of view? Yes, I agree with this. Yeah, of course. Because the individual incentives, incentives are not uh, for me to share everything that I'm doing for two reasons. First, what, what am I getting out of it? And, um, well, maybe sometimes I can use materials here and there. That's nice. But the potential risks, even if it's like one in a thousand or one in a hundred thousand who publish a paper and then somebody spots an error that's so critical that you have to retract the paper, this has happened. And, and just this risk is so big that you probably, if you just think about your yourself, your own um, Uh, benefits, uh, you probably would say, hmm, maybe not. But it's, of course, a very bad reason to choose not to do something, right? As a scientist, you shouldn't be driven too much by it. But if you completely leave it up to individual incentives, then it costs a little bit of time. There's a high risk that somebody will find a mistake, or I'll share data that I could use myself, but somebody else does more with it. So so I think it's an issue. And But all these things are almost immediately in the collective benefit. So it's very good if we spot errors in the work of other people. Um, and I want 
other people to spot errors in the work, not of myself, but of other people. So I know not to build on it or not use it or so. So uh, what do you think is the most important thing that university as an entity can do to stimulate open science? I think the most important thing they can do is stimulate researchers to collaborate. I really think that's the most important thing because what we talked about, these incentives, for example, these are all individual incentives. So the stronger you focus on individuals in your organization, the more people will feel these kind of pressures. The more that you make sure that people can collaborate and that they work together on things and they, that makes it much easier to share. So I think that's really one of the most important things that universities can stimulate. And it's also tricky, but it's needed. For example, I know situations where people decided to work together, which is very good, but then there was this moment where they had to, um, their PhD students that were, were involved in the project had to write up the results. And then the people involved in the project got sort of into a fight, well, not a fight, but a disagreement. Like we all need first author papers. Our PhD students need first author papers. And that was not possible. So they broke up, they broke up the collaboration and they wrote their small papers exactly not what you want so we have to think very long and hard about how we can foster collaboration and i think that will be a, a good task for universities to think about but why is the pendulum gone so far on the individual side um yeah why why are we so individual i think this is i mean from from years and years ago i mean really like 400 years ago right when we started to do science one of the main motivations was individual prestige um, and this was in a time where you didn't get paid for science so and and you could have uh, like uh, darwin or something can have something named after uh, himself so you have individual prestige as a good motivator now that might still be useful nowadays but now we actually have nice jobs and i think that Maybe, but I'm not sure, but I have the feeling that there's a young generation of scientists who feel a bit more that collaboration is pretty nice, but also are less strongly motivated by individual prestige than before. And uh, I think this is a good thing. So, so this used to be a very strong sort of motivation for, for individuals to work in science, and it's good, it can work, but if it goes too far, because you reward only individual performance, and somebody's the first and the the second person to figure out the same thing gets nothing. Uh, well, then you get a lot of these problems, like nobody's going to replicate the work of someone else, for example, which is just undesirable. Um, and also not fair, because the second person who does something is still uh, giving a, you know, making a big contribution. So I think that it went a little bit too far in, in the reward structure individually. And I think that there's a large group of people that actually doesn't necessarily think this is needed anymore that we can be motivated to work together and do something useful for society but that may be the most optimistic thing that i say but i, I really think yes that's possible so do you have a, you know, do you see uh, a time scale until which what we call now open science becomes really the mainstream science mm -hmm. i think that's a, an interesting question because things are really moving very quickly to be honest for example we had a couple of years ago maybe 2014 end of 2014 maybe we wrote this paper uh, about an initiative that's called the peer reviewers openness initiative uh, spearheaded by richard maury in cardiff and the idea is that as a reviewer you prioritize reviews where people say that they will share the data and the materials because we thought well we think this is important we can choose how to spend our time and this was then seen as very provocative that as a scientist you would choose what to review based on whether it had adhered to open science principles even though we said 
you can give any reason why you don't share. That's fine. You don't have to share it. You can also say, I don't want to share it because I think your initiative is stupid. And we would still review it as long as there was any justification. And this was 2014. We had wild discussions that this was a crazy idea. And basically now many journals are implementing this like three years later. Uh, so that's going so quickly that I'm, I find it very difficult to, to predict the future and how quickly it goes. I think many of these things feel very intuitive for younger researchers, which is important. They're more computer savvy, so they're not so scared of things, you know, software or the things that you can use. So I would say it's going to be pretty like 2025. I think we are very, very far with these things. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Daniel Lakens. You know, it's really encouraging to hear from both Kirsty and Daniel that so much can be achieved by personal initiatives, even though it sometimes feels like swimming against the stream or doing an unthankful job. Plus, the sense of belonging to a community of motivated people who want to change the course of science is quite exhilarating, right? And both of them mentioned that actually collaboration is the key and perhaps the most influential thing the university can do for the research community is to value collaboration even more. And that's a very nice bridge to our next discussion with two of the founders of the Open Science community here in Utrecht. Yeah, I'm uh, Anita Eerland. I'm an assistant professor here in Utrecht. Um, I work at the Department of Languages, Literature and Communication uh, within the Faculty of Humanities. So my name is Lou Brinkman. I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the uh, Social Health and Organizational Psychology Department. Uh, my work focuses mainly on the investigation of mental images and how mental images shape our perception. Yep. So, Luke and Anita, you got together um, creating an open science community in Utrecht University. Uh, when did you start this and how did it get together? Anita and I, we met over a cup of coffee and we were discussing open science and open science practices and what it means uh, for us as researchers and also how we could, how open science could be institutionalized. And and what we could do to to uh, promote this. And then we realized a couple of ways, weeks later that there was actually a open science policy being made in Utrecht, at Utrecht University. And we were really happy with that, that actually we saw, okay, it is already being institutionalized. That's great. But then we thought, okay, but if we have this policy, that's that exists only on paper. So how, how are people at a large scale actually going to change their workflows effectively and efficiently? And we thought what what we need actually is a community. So a, a low threshold initiative for people that do research and that either practice open science or want to learn more about it. Uh, but we also thought we should welcome people that are skeptical of open science and to that it would be interesting to hear uh, from them as well so right, because yeah. um, the people who usually are attracted are people who are already doing open science and are convinced that is the right way right 
So we would like to expand the bubble and to see whether we can actually get other people involved as well, mm-hmm. because we think that it's important to get everyone on board in order to make a large scale uh, cultural change in science. Right. And how and what actual activities have you undertaken since since that cup of coffee? Well, we have basically we have two activities planned. One is um, we want to organize workshops to educate ourselves and train ourselves in open science practices. And also to get have informal get-togethers where we talk about bottlenecks of open science, current open science policies at our university of other universities, what we think of this and how we can benefit from this. I think that's an important point. How do how can we as individual researchers benefit from endorse uh, em- embracing open science practices? And what do we need from for this? Do we need what kind of training do we need for this? But also what kind of architecture? For example, if we if I'm to share all my data, it would be nice to have maybe data stewards that can actually provide the right architecture for sharing data and code. And there may be many more things that are very useful to efficiently and effectively implement these open science policies, but we don't know about this yet. And that's why we want to organize these open science cafes as informal meetings to talk about these issues, to see how can we shape and put these open science policies effectively. So many people say that this can be an individual uh, initiative and people in their own initiate in, in their own small environment or their own practices can do it better. But the difference I see between that narrative and what you are starting is that you say, no, we need a community. Yeah. So that's what I want to ask. Why do you think or what made you think that only individual practices or correcting yeah. individual scientists is not the way to go forward? Uh, many people have started uh, incorporating open science practices in their in their workflow but in from my personal experience i was talking to a lot of people i do i i do uh, practice open science within my research and i was talking to people that are also doing it but maybe doing it a little bit different and but nobody really knew about each other that they were doing this and also we were all in in yeah, in dutch we say we were all in reinventing the wheel i don't know whether mm-hmm. that's in english saying mm-hmm. But there was, the lar- there was a large startup cost in changing your workflow and uh, doing it in an efficient way. And that was one of the reasons to, um, to start the open science community, to bring people in contact with one another, uh, to share their experiences in using open or adopting open science practices in their scientific workflow. Uh, to make it more efficient, to say, okay, this works for me and maybe this works for someone else in another discipline and maybe you can learn from each other how we can further improve our research practices. The thing is that there are a lot of initiatives uh, regarding open science, but a problem is, or something that we observed, is that uh, all these initiatives uh, reach the same kind of people, reach the same group. So there's... Uh, a group of people that are very involved in open science practices that initiate um, tools or meetings uh, that invite other people, but it 
always stays within the same bubble. And what we want to do is to broaden the tent and to reach more researchers uh, with this uh, community. And you say the group is about 90 people. Can we maybe talk a little bit of, about the people who are in that group? Are they mostly young scientists or um, are, are they early career scientists or do they progress along? Is it a very diverse group? Yeah, it's a very diverse group. So we have uh, members from all major faculties, from uh, social sciences, from humanities, uh, from faculty of science, from we have philosophers, uh, statisticians, um, and also from all career stages. So I think about 20% of our um, current members are full professors, mm-hmm. but we also have many early career researchers, PhD students, postdocs, and everything in between. So it's really a, a very diverse group. And it was very encouraging when we were setting this up to see that that we that people from such a diverse group would all uh, sign up for the community, because that really speaks um, that because it really shows that open science is really a topic that is uh, of interest to everyone from all career stages and all faculties. But personally, how do you make time available for this activity on top of your normal research time? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. <laughs> Right now, all the work we do is voluntarily. Um, So that means that we do this in the evening hours or during the weekend. We try to plan the cafes, um, get together, work on the website, things like that. So it's not that we get officially, we don't have time for this. (laughs) But um, yeah, we try to make as much time as possible. Um, I guess that's already a bottleneck. Not having time for this. Well, I guess we we started this, right? We thought of this and we started it. So, and we have to, the community still has to prove itself, to prove, prove the worth of itself. So we've started this initiative. Many people have joined. We have plans for workshops and open science cafes for the next year. And then we need to see whether this is actually the format that is useful. I think it is. That's why we, we, we started this. But we still need to prove ourselves. At the same time, it's really encouraging to see that many people, also uh, full professors from all faculties, uh, support this initiative. So we're also looking for opportunities to to get some funding for this so we can actually uh, spend more time on it. Because, yeah, as you say, one of the bottlenecks at this moment is the amount of time that we can can possibly invest in this. What are, what are your plans for the next half year after the kickoff? Okay, so the plan for next year is to have every month either an open science cafe or a workshop. And the open science cafes will be held at different faculties. Cool. Uh, Different faculties at Utrecht University. Yes, it's all within Utrecht University. Yeah, that's great. And where can people find and follow you if they want to get involved in the community? Yeah, people can find more information about the open science community at our website, openscience-utrecht.com, uh, or they can follow us on Twitter, OpenSci Utrecht. Great. So people get involved. Luke and Anita, thank you very much for this conversation. Unless there's one thing you want to add. You really want <laughs> the radio mode. This is podcast. If you work at Utrecht, Utrecht University, you can go to the website and sign up for the community uh, and the newsletter. And if you're working at another university you can and want to start your own open science community, you can contact me or Anita um, because we will, we can um, we like to share our experience and hear and hear yours. Great. That's great. Yeah, that's the spirit. 
Thank you very much, Luke. And thank you very much, Anita. Thanks. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcast. Thanks go out to our guests, Kirsty Whitaker, Daniel Lakens, Anita Eerland, and Luke Brinkman. We'd love to know what you think of the podcast. You can contact us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at r2ospodcast with the numeric 2. Or join the discussion at openscience-utrecht.com. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, then make sure you do, so you won't miss out on future episodes. We will publish the full interviews with Kirsty Whitaker and Daniel Lakens there too. The Road to Open Science podcast is brought to you by the Utrecht Young Academy in collaboration with the University Library and the Open Science Task Force. Jeroen Bosman and Bianca Kamer helped us with the research for this episode. Marisa Mol is our communication manager. Musical productions by Simon Ackermans and Mirena Hoogvorst. This show is produced and edited by Lieven Heremans and Sanlifa S. With help from Andy Clark. Thanks for listening and speak soon.